0: Well It's good to see everyone again uh, before we start the reason i, I I'm doing some uh, brazen self promotion. <laughs> hey. I just started a website just about a week ago called VedicMuse.org. so there's not a whole lot on there, uh, but there's an intention to to put a lot on there every day I'm trying to put up a recording of a song that have been they they I have a songbook of about three hundred songs that have been written by monks and nuns and devotees from all over the country uh, that the San Francisco Center has been singing out of for the last hundred years or so. And those songs aren't anywhere, and a lot of the people who have written them have passed on, and uh, so I'm the last person in the world with that songbook. and I thought it, it would be such a shame for all of that to be lost so it's up there as a project really just to make it available there's I put the sheet music and I put a recording of the song so that you can see how to play it and then hear how to play it Uh, if you like the way it's recorded you can listen to it uh, but you'll find out quickly that the quality of the music isn't there to impress (laughs) it's really there just to teach you how to sing the song Uh, but there's a nice very human feel to that so I I like it Uh, so far I'm only I'm only on two of them the rest of them are by uh, Greg who was a monk when I joined in San Francisco and uh, the other voice is Gary Floyd which uh, <laughs> crazy guy I, I could do a week's worth of talks just on Gary and his beautiful but odd relationship with God. He's a super bohemian. <coughs> he sang with a a, 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 a punk band <coughs> in uh, the 1970s that actually got signed by Time Warner so he was a there's some fame. I have been walking on the streets when he's been recognized, and someone ran across to get an autograph. So he's the real thing. But, uh, you know, but <laughs> I always am a little bit cautious about mentioning that, you know, he's a devotee of the Vedanta Society in San Francisco because if you go and you Google his name, you will fall out of your chair. You will just literally fall out of your chair. Uh, he has just. He's explored everything to its nth degree, and uh, but in his house, I don't know why I'm talking about him, just because he's on my mind. In, in his house, he, he, he never made much money. He's one of these musicians that signed one bad deal after another, so he made a lot of other people lots of money, but he himself walked away with almost nothing. So he lives in a tiny uh, one-bedroom apartment uh, in a very questionable area in San Francisco. But uh, in his house, because there's only one bedroom and then a big living room with sort of an attached kitchen. He's he's decided that the living room is his shrine, so his only living space is his bedroom, which is rather small. And then in his living room, which is the biggest room, he's got giant pictures of Jesus and Mother Mary and Ramakrishna and Kali, and he's got you know big curtains there draped, and it's he's always got tons of flowers, so he's just turned his house into a shrine, you know, it's, it's <laughs> which takes a lot of devotion to do something like that, you know, not to just stick in your closet somewhere, which is kind of what I was up to. Sometimes not even that, sometimes just a table somewhere in the living room. <laughs> anyway, that's Gary Floyd, and that's vedicmuse.org. There's a section, there's, there's going to be more sections up there, but right now the music section is the one that has everything on it. Uh, the about is just a blurb on what I'm hoping to do with the site. Uh, and then there's this thing called Vedic Christianity, which is a, a project of mine, which is to teach all of the principles of Vedanta using only Christian scripture. So uh, just to demonstrate the oneness of, of religion. And uh, it's been a project I've been working on for about three years. I went and lived in a Christian monastery for nine months last year, up in the Hudson Valley Holy Cross Monastery. And uh, as part of the endeavor, yeah, and so I'm working on that right now. There's just the paper that I actually got to deliver uh, in uh, at a, a overseas. <laughs> I'll do that instead of name dropping. Anyway, <laughs> so today's class, what we want to talk about, uh, this is the thing I'm most excited about. Well, I don't know if that's true at the moment. I am uh, this unity of religion. Uh, I am I am very excited about the idea of religion not being a plural, of there just being a single religion with uh, many, many, many different traditions and practices, uh, lots of independent dogmas and doctrines built around it. But the quest of religion is one. There's there's not many. And uh, I, I like the idea so much. One, because it's the oldest idea presented in the world's oldest scriptures, which I uh, treasure. I think that that's an important thing, that the world's oldest scriptures, the first scriptures that we have of any kind, lay out that principle, not just as a principle, but as a realization that these sages that, that did this work uh, to, to have this realization, to know the beloved, to know God, uh, put that forth as one of their first principles. So in the Rig Veda, which is that scripture, this the verse says, the human body is the temple of God. Now we started, I think I started this class with this verse, and so I thought it'd be good on our technically last lecture because next next week is really summary question and answer and just kind of putting the whole thing back into one perspective Uh, the human body is the temple of God one who kindles the light of awareness within gets true light the sacred flame of your inner shrine is constantly bright the experience of unity is the fulfillment of the human endeavor the mysteries of life are revealed So there's a lot of beautiful things in there. Your body is a temple, that inner light of awareness, which will give you true light if you clean the dust off of the lenses, which is basically the mind, removing me and mine from all of your thinking. The sacred uh, flame of this inner shrine, so the shrine that you worship at is here. I, I, I really like the interpretation of the Kata Upanishad, which is also one of the ancient writings, where this young man goes to death to ask him what the meaning of life is and uh, death, you know, plays a lot of games with him and reveals a lot of truth along the way. But one of the things is that Nachiketas, he teaches Nachiketas, who's the little boy, uh, of a, a ceremony, of a sacrifice that will give him eternal life. And uh, so when I was reading that for the first time, I got all excited. I was like, wow, cool, I want this ceremony too. I want to know what's going on. Uh, and then the weirdest thing in the world is that this being the, probably one of the most important things that he mentions, you don't get the information in the kata. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you what it was. It just kind of says he taught him how many bricks and how to lay and what to do and blah, blah, blah. And then it just moves on to the rest of the Upanishad. Uh, I was very unhappy with that. And so I, I, I couldn't let it go. I thought there must be some secret here. And so I took this clue that, uh, you know, he names the sacrifice after Nachiketas. So Nachiketas has this, this ritual sacrifice with his own name on it. And since we're not given much more than that, I thought, wow, I wonder, what, what could that mean? What could that mean? And I just rolled it around, and it occurred to me, perhaps this ritual fire burns within us. Maybe it's what digests your food, keeps your body at a certain temperature, keeps your heart beating, keeps your, your lungs breathing, keeps you alive, that this is your sacrificial fire, and it's got your name on it. It's, you've been given this sacrificial fire with your own name and that the life that you live is your offering to the Beloved. You know, that everything that you take in through any of your five senses, you're putting on this fire within you, and you're offering that. And the life that you live in response to all the things you put on this sacrificial fire is the smell of the incense that you're offering to your Beloved. It's your your summary of prayer. And then along with that, that God never says no to a prayer. Never. He never says no to you. But he says yes in proportion to the consistency of your prayer. So if you're saying one thing and doing another, he'll add those two together and answer the prayer in that summary. So if you're praying for name and fame, but you won't get out of bed to go do the audition, (laughs) you're going to be a frustrated actor who never went anywhere. That's the answer to your prayer, because that's what you asked for in summary. And so uh, part of the scripture's... Uh, always emphasize in this unity we will understand that singleness of mind, single pointedness of mind is very very important because that is your prayer. The state of your mind is your prayer to the beloved. It's not just the part you become conscious of and then hand them the best piece and then live the life you're going to live anyway. You'll get the answer to the whole thing. So this, this in the earliest scriptures is saying that you have this inner shrine, this inner light And to purify this inner light will give you clear vision to understand what it is that you're looking at, to understand the nature of the world. You see, in the beginning, the very first thing the sages did is the same thing that Western science is doing at this point. To find the answers to what this is and what this is about, they went outward into the senses. They studied all the things of the senses out there. And they realized very soon that for every question they answered in that direction, there was three more questions behind it. So that instead of coming up with an answer, they were simply multiplying their questions. And uh, it was getting unmanageable. And then one of them had this great idea, well, gosh, you know, all of this information bottlenecks right here. All of this information's going in here. And I'm the one looking for answers. What if we turn around and study that? Let's study this inner life. Who is it that's asking these questions? Who is it that wants to know what this universe <coughs> is? Who is it that's curious? what is my nature? And so in doing that, all of Eastern thought took a radical turn, which is what makes it unique from Western thought, in that their thought turned inward. They went inside to find the meaning of life, to find the answer to the universe. And in the West, we've still, we're, we're, we're out there fully entertained, excited, and happy about the multiplicity of questions. Every time we find one smaller particle, suddenly there's an indication that there's yet another one that's even smaller, that hasn't you know, it just goes on and on and on. And every one seems to say, this is the God particle. This is the one thing, you know. So they found that one, and now they're looking for another one. Uh, and so the problem with that is that it's just, it. it you, you never have the answer. You have many answers, and then you have more questions uh, beyond that. So this idea of your inner shrine is where the mysteries of life will be revealed to you. You can find out the meaning just by studying and looking internally. What's going on in here? What is this place that's asking, that's wondering, that's thinking? So, and he says at the end of that, he says, the experience of unity is the fulfillment of the human endeavor. So to find this oneness of all things, to find your oneness with each other, to find your oneness with with this universe, that is the fulfillment of life. That's the purpose of life, according to the earliest scriptures. Now I'm going to read a prayer. This, incidentally, is the last prayer that Jesus prayed on earth before he goes back uh, to the Father in in one sense. He says, (laughs) I ask that all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be perfect as one, so that the world may learn that you sent me and love them as you loved me. He says, you loved me before the establishment of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world did not recognize you, I recognized you. That the love you have for me may be in them, and I may be in them also." So Jesus' last prayer, just before the crucifixion, when the, the termination of his activity as the Son of the Beloved on the planet, is this reiteration that the fulfillment even of Christianity, even of his message and his desire for his followers, is to find that oneness. And what is the, that, that strand that ties that oneness together? It's love. That love that the Father had for him, that he has for us, that all of that might bind it all together. So I want to talk about that. How do we change a perspective? You know, in, in, in Eastern thought, uh, life is religion. There, there's not, it's not been institutionalized, it's not been defined, it's not, uh, you know, there are public places that people go to express their worship, you know, in the temples and whatnot, but religion in the East takes place in the home. Every home has a shrine. Every, every uh, mother, you know, and grandmother. Grandmothers, are, I think, from what I understand, are responsible for propagating the stories, for gathering the grandchildren around their feet and telling them the ramayana and the, the, the uh, uh, Mahabharata to share the scriptures with them. That's kind of her role. And it's considered very independent, you know, that, that, that everybody has their own thing going on, that there's nobody outside telling them, you are okay, you're not okay, you're this, you're not that, you're this, you're not this, that it comes from the inside out. And uh, that idea of life being our religion, life being our practice. That it's not, that our religion is not something to be segregated and set apart as a portion of ourselves. There is no such thing as secularism. It's impossible to be secular. God is everything. Everything you touch, taste, hear, smell, and think is the beloved. Where is the separation? How can it be something different? You know, in the, in the Eastern philosophy, the separation, secular, just means you forgot. <laughs> Secular means you forgot God. That's all that means. You know, to, to, because, because he hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't left you in any portion of your day, in any activity that you're involved in. And the idea is that because we share his intelligence, you know, God, God of course, according to the Eastern scriptures, God is intelligence itself. God is love itself. God is existence itself. And so anything that you use those three things for is holy. You love, you're intelligent, which means you have the ability to grow, you have the ability to change, you have the ability to not make the same mistakes over and over and over again. You have the ability to improve your life. That's, That's a gift from the beloved. He has shared his intelligence with you. He has shared his love with you. He has shared his existence with you. It's why you are able to see the reflection of yourself in the world, experience the world as a conscious being. Vivekananda, who was uh, one of the main disciples of a teacher called Ramakrishna, uh, who was in Calcutta around the turn of the century, uh, in the uh, late 1800s, 1900s, 1800s actually. But in 1893, Swami Vivekananda was one of the first sannyasins to come to the Western world. Because uh, for some reason, I don't really understand the reason, um, and after being to India, reasons aren't necessary. <laughs> so nobody knows why, but it was forbidden that sannyasins, or renunciates, uh, people wearing this orange cloth, it was, it was considered taboo for them to cross an ocean or to cross the Himalayas. And so uh, that's really where why Buddhism became Buddhism, actually. Because when Buddha, who was a Vedantist teacher, a Vedantist reformer in India, when he was driven out of India by the establishment who didn't like his teachings because they were threatening their power, uh, when he was driven out, his teachings went north, went over the Himalayas, and they didn't have Vedanta or the context to absorb those teachings. So they became identified with Buddha and became their own thing. And over the thousands of years that it's been around, the scriptures have been added and changed, but even now, uh, Buddhism and Vedanta to a Vedantist are the same. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the differences are so remote and so fine that you really don't have to worry them until you're actually falling into the chasm of realization. <coughs> at that point, you'll pass a little difference in thinking, which won't matter at all at that point. <laughs> so that, this, this uh, Vivekananda was one of the first ones to say, ah, hogwash, I'm crossing the ocean. I'm going to Chicago to the Parliament of Religions, to talk to the West. And uh, his quest wasn't so much to come here to do anything except represent the Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion, and to ask for help for his beloved India. Because he saw the poverty and suffering uh, there, and he saw the wealth and riches here, and he thought maybe they will help with this. And so he came. And at the Parliament of Religions, he gives this, uh, a lecture which included this statement here. The world is waiting for this grand idea of universal toleration. It will be a great acquisition to civilization. Nay, no civilization can long exist unless this idea enters into it. No civilization can grow unless fanatics, uh, bloodshed, and brutality stop. No civilization can begin to lift up its head until we look charitably upon one another. And the first step towards that much-needed charity is to look charitably and kindly upon the religious convictions of others, nay more to understand that not only should we be charitable, but positively helpful to each other, however different our religious ideas and convictions may be. And that is exactly what we do in India, as I have just related to you. It is here in India that Hindus have built and are still building churches for Christians, mosques for Mohammedans. This is the thing to do. In spite of any hatred, in spite of any brutality, in spite of cruelty, in spite of tyranny, in spite of the vile language that that they are given to uttering, we will and must go on building churches for Christians and mosques for Mohammedans until we conquer through love, until we have demonstrated to the world that love alone is the fittest thing to survive and not hatred, that it is gentleness that is the strength to live on and to fructify, and not mere brutality and physical force. So he really identifies with this idea of oneness. And what religion does not teach this love for your enemies? One of the main teachings of Jesus, you know, you have heard it been said to love your, your friends and hate your enemies, but I give you a new teaching. Love your enemies and serve those who hate you. Where is that today in our great civilization of Christianity? Where is that today? I beg you to find it. If you can't find it out there, please, let's find it here. Let's find it in the way that we think, and the way that we care, and the way that we reach out. It is so, uh, so much a struggle, I assume, for all of you, because it is for me. I watch the evening news, and the way things are presented, and the way they're talked about, just that head of hatred even in my heart, I feel it, raises up that anger, that disbelief, that indignation, you know, and, and just these thoughts that come up, I think, my God, if I'm living in a monastery, you know, with, with all of this environment of such tranquility, and I'm feeling these things, what's the average person going through out there, you know, from day to day? What are they suffering? What's, what is becoming of us as a collective? And so, this message of unity is not a religious message. It's not a message for the confines of churches and practices. It's a message for civilization, for us as people, as human beings, to make it part of our exercise to not tolerate. You know, in another lecture, Vivekananda goes on about this, he despises this idea of tolerance. He says, Who am I to tolerate you? Do you not have as much of a right to your existence and to your thinking and to your being as I have to mine? He says it's not toleration that we're after. It's acceptance. <coughs> it's seeing and, and understanding that each of us has thought about the things that we think. As right or as wrong as we may, might be. He says that the journey is not from moving from wrong to right. He says the journey is moving from lower truth to higher truth. Which is a wonderful way of thinking. To understand that everybody thinks the way they think, for good reasons in their world, in their mind, they're justified in the way that they think. And it's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're ignorant. It's not because, you know, they're, they're stupid liberals or stupid conservatives, you know, that this language <laughs> how it ever creeped into our, our daily life, who can say? But that' it's, that everybody should be given the credit and the respect for being thinkers, for having reasonable ideas. And you, as a human being, are responsible for understanding. If you can't get their perspective, ask questions. If you can't believe what they're saying, sit down and listen to why. Investigate, because until that person knows that you respect them, knows that you love them, they will never be able to hear you they will never be able to change and to grow and to take it another step from a lower truth to a higher truth. So it is up to us to have that respect and to have that love and to assume the best in each other first. You know, and to make our lives about investigating sameness and not investigating difference mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. In uh, San Francisco, the center there does this grand interfaith meeting every year. At, uh, they put up a huge tent uh, and uh, there's about uh, about 1500 people every year come to this and uh, they invite speakers from all different traditions to come. They try and get five different speakers every year which is a huge undertaking to do that year after year and uh, every year Swami Prabhudhananda who was the head of the center there would give up and give the same, the same lecture every year. He would always start by saying today is a day for us to sit together as spiritual people Not to investigate our differences, but to investigate our sameness. And when we run out of things that we agree on, then we can talk about the things that we disagree on. But it is my deep suspicion that we will have no time for it. (laughs) That's how we, as religious people, can keep love as the most important thing. Not to sit there and talk about what makes you different from me but to sit there and talk about what parts do we agree on. Because the thing that is so confusing in our environment is we have Christians of a 1,000 different brands in this country who won't talk to each other, who won't accept each other's kindness, who won't accept each other's gifts, who, who, who maintain these separations. And any time they all get together, it's a discussion of what's different, what I believe. You're wrong in that. I'm right in this. And the, and the conversation goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. Everybody runs back home, closes their doors into their separateness, which is an odd thing, because in each of them they would all agree that love is the most important thing. If you were to ask any spiritual person, what is the most important thing in this world, in this practice, they're all going to say love. But it's not going to reflect in the way that it looks, because they're not living that way. They're talking about differences and making those differences that are very small and very minor and can be sometimes absurd, making them more important than loving each other, making them more important than respecting each other, making them more important than reaching out and building a unity. You know? And it's, it's the same with, well, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on Christianity in a sense just because by and large that's, that's what this country uh, has embraced and that's the responsibility and that's what I grew up with and so I'm intimately familiar and intimately aware of these tendencies, and my heart intimately aches mm-hmm. because of them. And so that's why today, Vivekananda says, the other great idea that the world wants from us today, the thinking part of Europe, nay the whole world, is that eternal grand idea of the spiritual oneness of the whole universe. I need not tell you today, men from Madras University, which is where he was speaking. How the modern researches of the West have demonstrated through physical means the oneness and solidarity of the whole universe. How physically speaking you and I, the sun, moon, and stars are but little waves or wavelets in the midst of an infinite ocean of matter. How Indian psychology demonstrated ages ago that similarly both body and mind are but mere names of little waves in the ocean of matter. And how going one step further, it is also shown in the Vedanta that behind that idea of the unity of the whole show, the real soul is one. None can regenerate this land of ours, India's he's speaking of, without the practical application and effective operation of this ideal of the oneness of all things. To experience that oneness. You know, interestingly enough, when I... I, I went traveling when I was 25, like probably everybody. (laughs) And I wandered for a while and I settled down for a few months in in Prague. And I actually rented a room in a woman who happened to be a gypsy. Rented a room in her house. And every morning she would get up with her family and uh, she would read their tarot for the day, to give them advice for for the day. And it was an amazingly intimate time and uh, a very sweet family time that I I felt a little bit of envy toward, you know, that they would all sit around the breakfast table and one by one she would read their cards. And uh, (laughs) uh... I got curious and so she, because I was on vacation, I had all day and so they would all go to work and she and I would be at the house alone, she taught me how to read the tarot. And one of the interesting things that I learned, the very first thing that I learned, is the reason that she believed the tarot worked is that she believed that the whole universe is as it is because everything is as it is. So if I take this pen and I move it to here, the universe changes, that that has a rippling effect that affects everything in the universe, that we are interdependent, that we cannot be separated. And so when you turn over a particular card in front of a particular person with a particular intention, that card is determined not just by chance, but by the arrangement of all things in the universe at that moment. And that because of being able to see that and then understand, to have the ears to hear what the implications are for the day, you know. And I thought, gosh, what a lovely idea. I, you know, I didn't really buy into the card reading thing, although I did it for practice for a couple of years for my own self. But uh, the, uh, th- this notion of that interdependence, that, that everything that you do is a cause that affects everybody. Those thoughts that you have in your mind, they're not private thoughts. They affect everyone. It's always one of my favorite things is that, that in, in Eastern religion, particularly in the Vedanta, your thoughts are extremely important because your thoughts are what create reality. Your thoughts are how the soul expresses in the material world. You know, I, as I've mentioned, like we talked about in the other room, it's true for this room too, that if we had come here and sat here 100 years ago, Where would we have sat? In the woods. We'd be sitting under trees. How did this happen? This happened because somebody imagined it. It occurred to some developers, he was driving down the street, what if we just got rid of all those woods? And build big beautiful houses and buildings <laughs> and a clubhouse, you know, and, and put chairs in there and sound systems. How grand with windows looking out on what's left of the trees. <coughs> It'd be a wonderful idea. I'm sorry, I'm goofy. But yes, no, that notion that this place started in the mind. Somebody came up with an idea, and then their first thing they did they put their eye and mind on it. And it activated, it became a thought, it became a focus, and then it became an action. They drew it out on a piece of paper. And then they got some other people to think about it. And those people imagined and thought about it, and then drew on their pieces of paper. Then they all got together and said, this is what this all means. And it manifested. And this entire place came from an imagination, from a thought. So your thoughts and your ideas infect the whole world, either for good or negatively. It's up to you you know, walk into the grocery store. The other day, I went to, I went to a, a little tiny sandwich store in Sandy Spring, which I, well, I can't tell you what I had for lunch. It would offend some people, but <laughs> I had a BLT. And uh, this, B L T know, I'm a Hindu, Hindu monk, and I had a BLT for lunch. Um, so, and I was sitting, and the woman behind the counter, uh, first of all, I walked in, and I was the only one there and the two two girls that were working the counter were actually sitting and enjoying a tea together. Now I remember being them. You know, I remember in high school when I worked at Winchell's Donuts and there was nobody in the restaurant and I sat down with a friend to have a cup of tea. And when a customer walked in, it certainly wasn't my thought, oh good a customer's here. I get to go help them. It was like mm-hmm. <sighs> what do you want? <laughs> and so this 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 girl's mood was exactly was exactly that. But I, was, I thought, okay, okay, practice what you teach, practice what you teach. Just be here and just keep thinking positive things, positive things. And slowly, 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 I have to say we won, you know, that, that, that her mood improved. Because I just refused to see any of the annoyance and negativity that she was throwing at me in, in handfuls when I first got in there. And by the time I got my BLT, we were good friends and chit-chatting. And I was thinking to myself, you see, Monk, what the scriptures say is true. What you are inside affects the whole world. That the world, you know, you, you can take that negativity that you're witnessing and you can fall victim to it and become equally negative, demand to be treated in a proper way, which is what my ego wants, you know, to demand this, that, or the other. Or you can get rid of that me in mind that's infecting your mind that causes these problems to begin with. And you can spread that the and vow ideal to just enforce this idea of compassion, this idea mm-hmm. of love. That's what builds unity. That's what builds bridges and togetherness. Don't let the negative out there win the battle with you. Respond kindly. Respond in a loving way. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the idea of, one thi- of oneness. And it's, and it's the, the, the way that civilization can go forward. How far could we have come if our history was one of love like that, if we had actually listened to Jesus, and to Buddha, and to Krishna, and to Rama? If we had actually listened and lived our lives accordingly, what would civilization be? Where would homeless be? Where would drug abuse be? Where, where would loneliness be? Where would suicide be? If we were there for each other, if we believed in each other and valued each other as God himself or herself, that if we saw that ideal in ourselves first, because you can't do it unless you're seeing it inside. Why? Because what you see inside yourself is what you're going to project on the people around you. That's what you're going to project on the people around you. So discover first that you are made of love that you are made of intelligence, that you are made of existence, in a weird way, but to make those assumptions about yourself. And then you'll assume them about others. You'll assume that person's intelligent. What a marvelous thing to assume about somebody. You'll assume that person is loving. What a beautiful thing to be assumed about others. So see them in yourself. Discover them in here. Obey the impetus that comes from the heart. Don't let the mind, full of me and mine, focus your love to things that are only beneficial to you. that are only going to make you great at the expense of others. Let that go. Purify that idea from the mind completely. And live to serve, like uh, the peace pilgrim. See every moment as an opportunity to serve. She said that she stands in stillness in the moment waiting for that opportunity to manifest what a beautiful way to be still and know that i am god to sit there waiting to serve as the different streams having their sources in different places all mingle their water in the sea so O lord the different paths which men take through different tendencies various though they appear crooked or straight all lead to you that's, that's a, 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 a Vedic hymn, uh, I think it's one of the Upanishads, and uh, teaching that idea that, that we are all trying to accomplish the same thing. We all want love. We all want to be loved. We all want to give love. That's why it hurts when we don't. That's why we, we, we suffer when we violate our nature, our image of God, which is love itself. When we violate that, it hurts. So to see that instead of walking around, like you can drive now, I, I, I went to high school in Poolsville in 19, oh God, seventy nine, <laughs> And at that time, everybody was white. <laughs> there were only churches around. There was nothing else. And I moved back here just five years ago, and I'm astounded at what I see. I just, I'm amazed at what I see. First of all, I myself am in one of these funky, weird places, a Hindu monastery just. <laughs> Just down the road, but there's other funky monks around the corner that belong to the Buddhists, and then around this corner there's at least three different mosques, and then there's an Eastern Orthodox church right across the street from an Armenian church, and then there's another uh, community center, you know, belonging to to Ethiopians or something, or I can't remember what the sign said on the front. But all of these ra- Austrians and Yeah, they're all they're yeah. everybody. The it's amazing, church. isn't the it? Western. It's it's amazing. And, and, and I shouldn't say it out loud, but so far we're doing pretty good. <laughs> so far we're doing pretty good. Everybody seems to be making it work, you know? I'm going, to, I'm going to, to, to betray myself here and mention my own racism that I noticed in myself because when I first moved here five years ago, I go for a walk in the neighborhoods around the temple over there all the time. And it's very typically American, you know? Beautiful yards, beautiful little gardens, Everybody's got the, the requisite little chairs in the front porch that they never sit in. You know? <laughs> All the things are very nicely arranged. And I felt very comfortable. I made the assumption, oh, this is a, a, a white neighborhood. <laughs> you know? no. This is what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. The more I walked in that neighborhood and I started seeing people washing their cars and mowing their lawns, I realized that there were less than half white people in that neighborhood, <laughs> that there was everybody in that neighborhood. And I felt so ashamed that I had assumed, because they had nice yards, and because they were keeping their houses properly, and because it was quiet and well-behaved, that it was a white neighborhood. A very subtle thing. I wasn't looking to think that. You know. I, I wasn't aware, even, that that was my assumption, until I saw myself surprised that my assumption was wrong. And now I am thrilled and happy that my assumption was wrong, because it says to me, the problem is here. the problem is in my perceptions, you know, that we can make this work, and we are making this work, and we need to consciously make this work by having these attitudes of acceptance and love and respect for each other in everything, to see that oneness, that the soul that is me, the soul that burns this sacrificial fire in my heart, before it takes on all the attributes of this, this guy here, before it takes on all these attributes, It's the same as the soul behind you. We are all borrowing the image of God. And it is God who is us before we become ourselves, before we slap on the attributes and the adjectives. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm white, I'm black, I'm American, I'm Indian, I'm Ethiopian, I'm handsome, I'm old, I'm young. All of these attributes that we take from the I am. You see, God is the I am, and he doesn't put any attributes after it. He says, I'm the I am. So when you say, I am a man, the I am is the part that you are the image of God. I am, and then you add the attributes that make you independent, that make you individual, that make you separate, that make you special. And to know that that I amness is first... You can't say it any other way, at least in the English language, that I am always has to come first before any attributes. So should it be when we interact with each other. That I am in me is the I am in you, that when we describe ourselves, we always start with that first, I am. And that I am is where we will find that unity, because that I am is love, intelligence, and existence to hold on to that place and to realize that all the rivers are running to the ocean, to the one beloved, and that all of us are trying the best we can to make sense out of something that's impossible to understand. That all of us are taking a situation that when you think about it can be terrifying and making and making it work. I had a wonderful experience in New York City one time where I was just overwhelmed with that idea. I sat in Central Park And to sit in Central Park is such an experience, especially on a a Saturday in in spring. I recommend everybody do it (laughs) at least once in your life. To see thousands, nay, tens of thousands of people all doing different things in the joy of a sunny spring day. How marvelous it is to see people playing instruments and dancing, people playing soccer, croquet, picnicking, you know, holding hands chasing their children, you know, (laughs) yelling at their husbands. All (laughs) All of the different things that are going on at one time. And I sat there and I thought about that with the beloved as I just meditated for a moment thinking, wow, all of these people woke up this morning into a situation they don't understand. None of us knows what we are. Nobody knows what a thought is. Nobody knows where they come from or where they go. Nobody understands death. Nobody knows what it means. All of us are growing old one day at a time, you know, taking one step toward the end of the plank every day. All of this terror, all of this potential of fear, and yet in the midst of that, here we are, just making the best of it, creating a dream and running after it, creating an ideal and walking toward it. You know, in peace, in a park, on a beautiful sunny day, when we could be huddled in terror, No, we found the boldness of humanity, We found the goodness of heart to investigate, to enjoy, to reach out, to find. And I thought that was overwhelmingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. And what an idea that the perfect realization of this oneness is a beautiful sunny spring day in Central Park when everybody's going on seeking for their own ideal, building their own castles in peace and in harmony and the company of each other. This is the vision of religion. This is the vision of spirituality. This is the means to knowing. But why is it so difficult? How do we mess it up? There's a great story uh, Vivekananda tells. He says, I think I should tell you a story which would illustrate the cause of all of this trouble. A frog lived in a well. It had lived there for a long time. It was born there, actually, and brought up there, and yet was a little small frog. Of course, the evolutionists were not there then to tell us whether the frog lost its eyes or not. But for our story's sake, we must take it for granted that it had its eyes and that it was, uh, every day, cleansed the water of all the worms and the bacilli that lived in it with an energy that would do credit to our modern bacteriologists. And in this way, it went on and became a little sleek and fat. Well, one day, another frog that lived in the sea came and fell into the well. Where have you come from? I am from the sea. The sea? How big is that? Is it as big as my well? And he took a leap from one side of the well to the other. (laughs) My friend, said the frog of the sea, how do you compare the sea with your little well? Then the frog took another leap and asked, is your sea so big? What nonsense you speak to compare the sea with your well. Well, then, said the frog of the well, nothing can be bigger than my well. There can be nothing bigger than this. This fellow is a liar and so he threw him out. <laughs> that is exactly our situation. That is why all of the problems. Because what is our little well? It's our ego. Right? I grew up again I'm going to I'm going to pick on myself as a Christian. So if you're a Christian, I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on myself. I grew up in a very fundamentalist church, a very small church that that really I learned that not even all the people on the front row were actually going to make it, that only that particular people on the front row were actually going to make it. And I grew up believing that I was born into the one and only true religion, the only way to know God. And I adamantly believed it all the way until I went to seminary in 1983 in Abilene, Texas. And then in that mind, I began to wonder, God, how is it that I know this thing is the absolute truth of things when I haven't even looked at anything else. Didn't even know that there was anything else out there. You know? And so I began to investigate and began to try and understand and say, what is, how can I have these attitudes of rightness? How can I have this security of being the right one without having ever studied even a single line of anything else? I said, even if it's true, the way that I've done it is rude, (laughs) is disrespectful, is selfish, boastful, and all of the things that Jesus abhorred. (laughs) And so I went out to learn, I went out to study, I went out to find out uh, what was going on. And that has led me to this beautiful notion of oneness, this beautiful ideal of unity that Jesus prayed, nay, even begged God for our realization to understand it and see it on his last night Before he was crucified Before his mission ended As it were So don't be that little frog <laughs> Don't believe That you're always right No matter what, what it is Even if you are right You're not right until the person discovers it <laughs> You know You're not right until they discover it And how will they ever discover it Certainly not if you're offending them Certainly not if you're alienating them Certainly not if you don't respect them. So our job as spiritual people in any religious conversation is not to, to, to tell it, we can share our point of view, but it's not to instruct our point of view. Our job in a religious conversation is to sit down next to the person we're talking to until we fully understand their perspective, fully understand why love has brought them to the view of life that they have. Through that process, they will see that that respect that you are showing for them. Through that earnestness of your investigation, their walls will come down. And they will converse with you. And at that moment, when at that moment you can sit with them and look at their ideal and worship your beloved even in that ideal, then they will feel that unity with you. And at that moment, your words can become teachers. Your ideas can become inspiring. At that moment, you can both grow and take the next step to a higher truth. At that moment. So as spiritual people, we're not here to teach. We're here to love. We're here to understand. We're here to grow and to transcend the little walls of our well so that we can appreciate the idea of an ocean and then realize there's more than one ocean. Mm-hmm. And then to realize, really, there's no water on Earth that's separate from any other water in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, The idea of a holy Ganga doesn't make any sense anymore because every bit of water in the universe at one time or another has flowed through the Ganga River. The River Jordan, not special because of the water in it. Mm-hmm. All of the water in the world at one time has thro- flowed through the River Jordan. So we, as human beings, you know, have had all of these thoughts and all of these ideas. He says, you have to know. A seed is put in the ground, and the earth and the air and the water are placed around it. Does the seed become the earth or the air or the water? No. It becomes a plant. It develops after the law of its own growth, assimilates the air, the earth, the water, converts them into plant substance and grows into a plant. Similar is the case with religion. The Christian is not to become a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Hindu a Buddhist to become a Christian, but each must assimilate the spirit of the others and yet preserve his individuality and grow according to his own laws of growth. We take, you know, from all of these beautiful lessons, all of these beautiful scriptures, all of these beautiful incarnations, we take what is valuable, what obeys the laws of our own ideal, love, primarily, intelligence, existence, (laughs) those three things, and we grow according to our own ideal, and trust the universe, which is the beloved herself, to trust and understand that we will grow according to our needs. That if we're an oak tree, we'll be an oak tree. If we're a tulip, we'll be a tulip. And our job is to be the best of oak trees, the best of tulips. Not to be the only tree, Mm -hmm. not to be the only flower, but to be part of a beautiful unity of creation, all put together by the beloved herself, himself. Nothing else is necessary but these. He's writing this in a letter to his fellow monks in India after he's, as he's traveling around the United States. Nothing else is necessary but these. Love, sincerity, and patience. What is life but growth, expansion, love? Therefore, all love is life. It is the only law of life. All selfishness is death. And this is true here or hereafter for none lives, my boys, but he who loves. Feel, my children, feel, feel for the poor, feel for the ignorant, feel for the downtrodden, feel till the heart stops and the brain reels and you think that you will go mad and then pour the soul out at the feet of the Lord and then will come power, then will come help and indomitable energy, struggle, Struggle was my motto for the last 10 years. Struggle still, I say. While it was all dark, I used to say struggle. When the light is breaking in, I still say struggle. Be not afraid, my children. Look not up in the attitude of fear toward that infinite starry vault as if it would crush you. Wait, in a few hours more, the whole of it will be under your feet. Wait, money does not pay, nor name, nor fame, nor learning. It is love that pays. It is character that cleaves its way through this adamantine wall of difficulties, this ideal of holding on to that nature of pure love within us. There cannot be any growth without liberty. Our ancestors freed religious thought, and we have a wonderful religion. But they put a heavy chain on the feet of society, and our society is, in a word, horrid, even diabolical. He's talking about his India. In the West, society always has had freedom, freedom, and look at them. On the other hand, look at their religion. Liberty is the first condition of growth. Just as man must have liberty to think and to speak, so he must have liberty in food, in dress, in marriage, and in every other thing, so long as he does not injure others. So this idea of liberty, we all have to have our space to learn. We all have to have our space to grow. We're not all going to agree on the same things. You know, this whole wrestling that we did and that we're still doing with gay marriage is a great example. It's like giving that liberty. I may or may not agree with it, so I should or shouldn't do it accordingly. But for you, you have to learn. You have to figure things out. You have to make a life for yourself in the same way I have to make a life for myself. I give you that liberty to do that because you're a human being. Because I trust that the things that you think and do are according to the same reasons that I think and do what I do. Because I'm trying my best to figure out what I am, who I am, where I am, and what it means. You know? So to offer each other that, that place of respect, that place of love, that place of encouragement, to figure things out, to grow, to nurture each other, nobody needs fingers pointed at them fingers pointing at anybody has never inspired anyone that's why Jesus did so little of it always inspire always see the highest, live for the highest and think the highest and in that we discover the oneness of all things we discover the unity of not only religion but of life itself and experience and our endeavor will be fulfilled the purpose of our life will be reached That's the unity that we're talking about and longing for.